This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to articular cartilage defects of the knee and distal biceps avulsion, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with articular cartilage defects of the knee. First question. When obtaining grafts from a trochlear donor site during an osteochondral autograft transplantation procedure, where on the trochlea are the lowest contact pressures found? And the choices are 1. Proximal medial, 2. Proximal lateral, 3. Central, 4. Distal medial, and 5. Intercondylar notch. So patellofemoral contact pressure studies have shown that the lowest contact pressures during a functional range of motion of the knee, that is from 0 degrees to 110 degrees, are located on the distal medial surface of the trochlea. However, before a final donor site location is chosen, additional considerations like the size of the defect and the curvature of the recipient surface need to be evaluated. For example, the distal medial location may not provide sufficient surface area for larger lesions, and the distal medial surface is convex, whereas the intercondylar notch is saddle shaped. So, things to keep in mind before choosing a final donor site location. But the correct answer for this question that is asking for where on the trochlea the lowest contact pressures are found, that answer is for distal medial. Next question. Successful short-term outcomes following microfracture of the knee are associated with, and the choices are 1, a high fill rate of the defect on MRI, 2, a high body mass index, 3, a long duration of preoperative symptoms, 4, microfracture of the patella, and 5, anterior cruciate ligament insufficiency. So short-term outcome studies of microfracture show good success associated with three variables. These are high fill rate on follow-up MRI of the defect, low body mass index, and a short duration of preoperative symptoms. In general, patellar microfracture results have been poor. So the correct answer to this question is 1, a high fill rate of the defect on MRI. Next question. What type of tissue is formed by the activation of marrow mesenchymal cells following subchondral drilling of an 8 by 7 millimeter osteochondral defect? And the choices are 1. Elastic cartilage, 2. Fibrocartilage, 3. Hyaline cartilage, 4. Trabecular bone, and 5. Hypertrophic chondrocytes. So subchondral drilling of an osteochondral defect will create fibrocartilage tissue. So the correct answer to this question is 2, fibrocartilage. But let's review this concept a little further. The premise of subchondral drilling is to utilize the marrow-stimulating effects of subchondral bone to create fibrocartilage in place of hyaline cartilage defects. Penetrating the subchondral plate will expose the damaged area to progenitor cells that reside in the subchondral bone. Activating progenitor cells will create fibrocartilaginous scarring. Fibrocartilage is biologically and biomechanically inferior to native hyaline cartilage. However, this repair process will create a congruent joint surface and prevent further deterioration of the adjacent cartilaginous tissue. Mitofer et al. examined 48 patients with isolated full-thickness articular cartilage defects of the femur that were treated with a microfracture technique. MRI imaging showed good or moderate tissue repair and filling in 83% of patients. These patients showed greater improvements in their SF36 score after treatment 
compared to the other 17% of patients with low tissue repair and filling. The bone marrow stimulating technique of an osteochondral defect basically involves debriding the sclerotic bone, trimming the edges of unstable articular cartilage, drilling past the subchondral plate approximately 4 millimeters, and obtaining sufficient convergence between the holes to allow for a mesenchymal clot. To quickly review the incorrect answers for this question, answer 1 is incorrect because elastic cartilage is mostly found in the external ear, epiglottis, and larynx. Answer 3 is incorrect because hyaline cartilage is mostly found in the ribs, nose, larynx, and trachea. Answer 4 is incorrect because subchondral drilling has been shown to alter the subchondral bone plate and trabecular bone composition by causing microcysts and intralesional osteophytes that later fill in with cancellous bone. And answer 5 is incorrect because hypertrophic chondrocytes are cells, not tissue, and therefore subchondral drilling has no effect on their activity. Next question. Following a medial femoral condyle osteochondral autograft mosaicplasty, which of the following statements best describes the fixation of the graft? And the choices are 1. Graft fixation strength increases linearly with time until subchondral union at 3 months. 2. Graft fixation strength initially decreases during the early healing phase and then increases with subchondral bone healing. 3. Graft fixation strength does not change during the first 3 months following surgery. 4. Graft fixation strength is enhanced by early weight bearing. And 5. Graft fixation strength initially increases over the first 6 weeks, then recedes with bony remodeling. So studies have shown graft fixation strength initially decreases during the early healing phase and then increases with subchondral bone healing. So answer 2, graft fixation strength initially decreases during the early healing phase and then increases with subchondral bone healing is the correct answer. So following mosaicplasty, appropriate postoperative rehabilitation and weight-bearing status must be based upon the fixation of the osteochondral autograft plugs. In addition, early non-weight-bearing motion is important to prevent stiffness and protect the joint surfaces with synovial fluid. Whiteside et al. performed a study in pigs evaluating the fixation strength of osteochondral autograft mosaicplasty during the first week following implantation. The graft fixation was notably weaker one week following surgery due to the postoperative response and host remodeling. These results suggest that protected weight bearing should be used until the osteochondral plugs have healed into the subchondral bone, generally by three months. Next question. A 24-year-old female has moderate arthrosis of the medial facet of the patella and the medial femoral condyle. Which of the following procedures is contraindicated? And the choices are 1. Anterior McKay tibial tubercle osteotomy, 2. Anteromedial Fulkerson tibial tubercle osteotomy, 3. An anterolateral tibial tubercle osteotomy, 4. Medial opening wedge high tibial osteotomy, and 5. A lateral closing wedge high tibial osteotomy. So an anteromedial Fulkerson tibial tubercle osteotomy is contraindicated in patients with significant arthrosis of the medial facet of the patella and the medial femoral condyle. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Anteromedial Fulkerson tibial tubercle osteotomy is contraindicated for a patient with moderate arthrosis of the medial facet of the patella and the medial femoral condyle. To quickly review, 
anteromedial tibial tubercle osteotomy, otherwise known as the Fulkerson procedure, involves the transfer of the tubercle to a more anterior and medial location. Changing the vector of the extensor mechanism can help reduce lateral patellar subluxation slash dislocation and concomitantly unload areas of arthrosis on the distal and lateral aspects of the patella. When performing a tibial tubercle transfer, the surgeon should be aware of proximal lesions or medial facet or condylar lesions. Thus, intact proximal and medial cartilage is required to obtain maximum benefit from this procedure. Pasquale Garrido et al. in a level 4 study reviewed 62 patients who underwent autologous chondrocyte implantation of the patellofemoral joint for defects an average size of 4 square centimeters. Those that underwent anteromedialization tended to have better clinical outcomes than those without realignment, however 44% of patients still required a subsequent procedure. Paulos et al. in a level 3 study prospectively followed 25 patients with a dislocating patella that underwent a derotational high tibial osteotomy, medial or anteromedial tibial tubercle osteotomy. There were no dislocation recurrences in either group, and 92% of the patients stated that they were happy with the results of their surgery and would undergo the procedure again. And the final question for this topic, all of the following are acceptable scenarios for the use of autologous chondrocyte implantation, or ACI, in the patellofemoral joint except, and the choices are 1, a grade 4 lesion of the medial femoral condyle, 2, a grade 4 lesion of the trochlea, 3, joint space narrowing on merchant view, 4, varus mechanical axis on standing full-length radiograph, and 5, concomitant anteromedial tibial tubercle transfer osteotomy. So joint space narrowing on a merchant view is a contraindication for autologous chondrocyte implantation for patellofemoral arthritis. So the correct answer to this question is 3, joint space narrowing on merchant view. Saleh et al. states autologous chondrocyte implantation relies on intact, full-thickness cartilage margins to maintain the joint space so that the growing cartilage repair tissue may fill the defect. Cartilage loss seen with diffuse arthritis is not amenable to ACI, and so it is critical that there is a preserved patellofemoral joint space as seen on a merchant or skyline view. The article states that ACI can be used for grade 3 or 4 defects on the patella or trochlea. Concomitant realignment procedures of the patellofemoral joint, such as the lateral release, medial tubercle transfer, or anteromedial tubercle transfer, and the tibiofemoral joint in the form of a high tibial osteotomy, are indicated in the presence of mechanical malalignment. The article by Peterson et al. followed 94 patients for 2 to 9 years and found graft failure in only 7 patients. Histologic analysis of 37, quote, second-look arthroscopy biopsy specimens showed a correlation between hyaline-like tissue and good-to-excellent clinical results. It's important to remember that autologous chondrocyte implantation is not FDA-approved for use on the patella, and the use of ACI off-label should be discussed with patients preoperatively. Moving on to the next topic of distal biceps avulsions. The first question is, what nerve is injured most commonly during the superficial dissection when repairing a distal biceps rupture through a single incision anterior approach? And the choices are 1. Medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve, 2. Lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve, 3. Superficial radial nerve, 
4, ulnar nerve, and 5, posterior interosseous nerve. So the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is at risk during the superficial dissection when repairing a distal biceps rupture through a single incision anterior approach. So the correct answer to this question is 2, the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve. But to quickly review, the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is the terminal cutaneous branch of the musculocutaneous nerve, which supplies sensation to the volar lateral aspect of the forearm. The lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve pierces the deep fascia of the arm lateral to the musculotendinous junction of the distal biceps tendon after lying on top or piercing through the brachialis muscle. It exits the arm and lies in the subcutaneous tissues of the antecubital fossa. It is important to retract this nerve laterally during the approach to the distal biceps tendon. Cohen describes the importance of identifying the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve during the superficial dissection as injury to this nerve is not uncommon with 5-7% to of patients experiencing injury. Injury to the PIN in about 5% of patients can be devastating and occurs with retractor placement during the deep dissection and the use of suspensory fixation on the posterior cortex of the radius. Next question. A 45-year-old coach sustains a complete distal biceps tendon rupture at the elbow. Surgical repair is most indicated to, and the choices are 1. Restore full supination strength, 2. Restore full elbow flexion strength, 3. Restore full range of motion, 4. Improve cosmesis, and 5. Prevent degenerative changes of the elbow. So this is a pretty straightforward pathoanatomy question. The biceps is primarily responsible for supination of the forearm. The brachialis muscle is primarily responsible for elbow flexion strength. So failure to repair the distal biceps tendon will result in loss of 40% supination strength and 10% loss in flexion strength. Therefore, surgical repair of a complete distal biceps tendon rupture is most indicated to maximize supination strength. Improved cosmesis should not be the primary indication for surgical repair. Degenerative changes of the elbow have no bearing on whether the distal biceps is repaired or not, and it's important to remember that loss of terminal extension is common in distal biceps tendon repairs. So the correct answer to this question is obviously 1. Restore full supination strength. Next question. A young healthy male undergoes a distal biceps repair and sustains an iatrogenic nerve injury during the procedure. Which of the following clinical findings are most likely to be seen in this circumstance? And the choices are 1. Inability to extend the thumb 2. Lateral volar forearm numbness 3. Inability to flex the middle finger 4. Medial volar forearm numbness and 5. Dorsal thumb numbness So if you were paying attention to the first question we reviewed on this topic, you should already know the answer to this question. But again, the most commonly injured nerve during a distal biceps repair is the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve. An injury to this nerve would result in lateral volar forearm numbness. So the correct answer to this question is 2, lateral volar forearm numbness. To quickly review distal biceps avulsions, they can be partial or complete. Indications for surgical management include young, healthy patients who do not wish to sacrifice function, as well as partial biceps avulsions that do not respond to conservative management. Repair of a distal biceps avulsion can be approached through either an anterior one incision technique or a two incision technique, aka the Boyd-Anderson technique. 
The one incision technique uses the interval between the brachioradialis, which is innervated by the radial nerve, and pronator teres, which is innervated by the median nerve, while the two incision technique uses this same interval in addition to a second posterolateral elbow incision. The lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is the most common nerve injured during either approach. Kelly et al. retrospectively reviewed 74 distal biceps tendon repairs and found five sensory nerve paresthesias. The lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve was most commonly injured, followed by the superficial radial nerve. Kane et al. retrospectively reviewed 198 distal biceps tendon repairs and found a 36% complication rate. Lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve paresthesias were found in 26%, while radial sensory nerve paresthesias were found in 6%, and posterior interosseous nerve, or PIN injury, was found in 4%. So to quickly go over the incorrect choices for this question, answer 1 is incorrect, as the inability to extend the thumb would be the result of a posterior interosseous nerve injury. Answer 3 is incorrect, as inability to flex the middle finger would be the result of a median nerve injury. Answer 4 is incorrect, as medial volar forearm numbness would be the result of a medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury. And 5 is incorrect, as dorsal thumb numbness would be the result of a superficial radial nerve injury. Next question. A 42-year-old male has a suspected distal biceps rupture with a tendon that can be palpated but is painful during the hook test examination. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? And the choices are 1. Operative exploration of distal biceps tendon. 2. Immobilization for 3 weeks followed by repeat physical examination. 3. Early physical therapy with emphasis on range of motion and strengthening. 4. CT scan. And 5. MRI scan. So it's important to distinguish between complete and partial tears as it guides treatment decisions. Classic physical exam findings of complete tears include antecubital pain and ecchymosis, a non-palpable distal biceps tendon which is found on an abnormal hook test, proximal retraction of the biceps muscle, and weakness with supination and flexion. A partial tear often has a normal hook test but has pain with the examination. An MRI is most appropriate for confirmation of a partial distal biceps rupture, while an MRI is not always required for a complete tear if the exam is conclusive. But the correct answer to this question is 5, an MRI scan. The reference by Vardakis et al. reports a series of patients initially treated with conservative management for their partial biceps tendon tears. They were all then treated with operative fixation secondary to recalcitrant pain. They note significant improvement in pain at an average of 31 months in all seven patients without any complications noted. And the final question for this topic, a 40-year-old male was moving his furniture several days ago when he developed anterior forearm pain. On physical exam, he is tender just distal to the antecubital fossa. He has decreased strength on supination and elbow flexion when compared to the contralateral side. His MRI shows inflammation at the site of the biceps insertion on the bicipital tuberosity with some attached tendon fibers remaining. It also shows abnormally increased signal intensity and an increased diameter of the distal biceps tendon compatible with a partial tear. Avulsive marrow edema is also present within the bicipital tuberosity of the radius and distension of the bicipital radial bursa is also present. His injury typically occurs in what portion of the tendon's distal insertion? 
and the choices are 1. Proximal, 2. Distal, 3. Central, 4. Radial, and 5. Ulnar. So the clinical presentation and MRI are consistent with a partial tear of the distal biceps tendon. Partial tears of the distal biceps tendon are rare and may be frequently misdiagnosed. It typically occurs in active middle-aged males, and only a small number have been reported in the literature. Davis et al. published a case report showing that the tear is degenerative in nature and is located along the radial border of the bicipital tuberosity where spurring has occurred. This was then confirmed by Kelly et al., who found the same partial tear pattern and described a surgical technique to repair it through a single incision posterior approach. But the correct answer to this question is 4. The patient's injury typically occurs in the radial portion of the tendon's distal insertion. That's all for this question review session about articular cartilage defects of the knee and distal biceps avulsions. Hopefully that was helpful. Stay tuned for another question session tomorrow covering the topics of lumbar spine anatomy, pediatric osteomyelitis, and biopsy principles. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.